This is our Suburb Trends Report for March 2023. We'll be looking at what property investors need to know when they're looking at investing across the country. And in this episode, we'll be discussing the differences in price movements at the upper end of the market versus the affordable end. Uh, when there's a conflict, what trumps data or grassroots experience? So we're going to dig into that a little bit. And also, we're going to tap into a bit of sea and tree change churn. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. This month, we've asked Kent to look into a seeming incongruence between what the data says about how the top end of the property market is performing compared to grassroots feedback. By that, I mean that CoreLogic has released data showing that the top 25th percentile is showing the largest price falls. And yet, when I'm speaking with a number of sales agents and buyers agents, I'm routinely being told that the top end is holding out surprisingly well. And we've seen that in some of our searches too, in my business. So this is not just people talking it up. This is lived experience. So who should we believe is the basically the question here. So Ken, can you kick us off by briefly explaining how you've tackled this challenge? Yes. What I've done is I've taken statistical area threes, I'll say SA3 for short. And I've taken their median, and then what I've done is I've taken suburbs that are representative of that area, um, so that they had to have a minimum of 500 homes, and they needed to be within 30% of that median. So that was my sample to play with. Then what I did is I carved them up into different price brackets. So first one was under 500k, the next one was 500 to 1 mil, 1 mil to 1.5, 1.5 to 2, and then over 2. So I ended up with just over, I'm rounding, about 2,500 suburbs to play with, all reasonably well-behaved. What did I come up with? The first thing to talk about is what is their current level of inventory and how long has it been since those markets peaked? And this tells us a fair bit about what's going on in terms of cycles and where we are. Um, The under 500k market, obviously you're not going to get any of those in Sydney, but you get a lot of those in regions and you get a few handful of those in places like Adelaide. So under 500k, I'm just doing houses here. Uh, The current inventory level is 3.6 months. So that's at the upper end of this list. So it's 3.6. The 12 month price change, however, is 8%. So it's still had some, some growth and the time since peak on average was five months. So not that long ago, the peak was, you know, only about five months back. So that was a call out there. So the next bracket up, 500k to 1 mil. Now we're starting to get a splattering of these in a Sydney, for example. You know, there's a fair whack in Brisbane, etc. a fair few in yeah. Melbourne as well. Uh, inventory level, 3.2 on average, 3.2. So a bit lower. Uh, 12 month price change, 0%. So the average was 0%, nine months since the end of the party. So time since peak, nine months. Now we get interesting. This is the stuff we're talking about for Sydney. Predominantly here, we're starting to get over a mil. So one mil to 1.5 mil. 2.4 months of inventory starting to get pretty low. Minus 7% growth rate last 12 months. Again, this is national. So it is, you know, and 11 months since peak. Now the 11 months since peak repeats itself for all these other categories now. 1.5 mil to 2 mil, inventory 1.7. Pretty low, right? Minus 10% 12-month price change and over 2 mil, 1.2 months of inventory. Like wow. very, very low, 10%, minus 10% 12-month price growth. So what does that tell me? Effectively, it looks like the first market that was hit was the top end of town, but it's retreated back in terms of supply and supply versus demand, which I'm using inventory as that measure, just to repeat, effectively, it says if I've got 10 listings and five selling per month, 10 divided by five, two months of stock, it tells me that the top end of the market, this over 2 mil or even over 1.5 mil, 
this market has done a lot of its correcting. It's it's corrected. Supply and demand looks very healthy. So there is sentiment. Yes, there there there's borrowing capacity issues. We can't deny any of that. But if you could put those to one side and just look at inventory measures and listings, the markets look pretty well positioned. I think the interesting about that inventory is like, you know, even if it's one or two, two months of inventory, right? It's super tight. Um, but the, from what I'm looking around and chatting to clients, there's still quite a lot of properties that have been on the market for three, four, five, six months. Like there's still a lot of properties that are, you know, just sitting there, you know, maybe they're on busy roads or they're dark, et cetera. So if you took off, you know, maybe a fair whack of listings that people aren't that desperate to buy under higher rates and there's no FOMO, like, does that make it even really much tighter for the good stuff, right? Like, cause if there's only 1.2 on the market, like one month of listings and that includes all the poor stuff, like. There must be really very few good listings around based on that metric. Yeah, and one of the metrics I like to look at is how many of these suburbs are, are serving up properties in the top streets, you know, the top 20 streets is yeah. kind of where you want to be, right? Um, so a lot of them are very, very shallow pools. So you look, it varies region to region, but on average, this market looks quite tight. So there's not that massive oversupply. And at the lower end of the market, we can see inventory levels building. So, you know, when we get down to the, regions we get down to the areas that were late to leave the party um they're starting to see some some significant jumps in inventory so it'll be interesting to see these markets specifically those that are in the lower socioeconomics or have you know mm. affordability issues and what i've done is I've, I've readjusted this set of data and sliced it and diced it slightly different by not using price brackets but but by using affordability and the affordability metric I'm using is how many years of household income does it take to cover the median price? So affordable being less than 10 years in you know, my definition. And I've carved it up into three, less than 10 years, 10 to 15 years, uh, and then over 15 years, which is you know totally out of the reach of first home buyers, obviously. So the, the inventory levels for each of these three categories, 3.5 for the below 10 years. That's interesting. So you know, we're seeing that it's flowing into some of those markets and usually i've been calling out that the you know, affordability is such a great asset because you know you people can still buy and you can still have buyers that are locals and this is a bit of a segue into something we'll cover later on which is a lot of the exodus from sydney were buyers who were cashed up with sydney budgets buying in richmond tweed or buying down the south coast of new south wales etc and those markets have become rather dependent on the city budgets you take out the city buyer what have you got left is a very very unaffordable market uh huh. 15 years plus for local local buyers just give us the inventory on the lesser affordable markets as yes yes so so three groups under 10 years was 3.5 on average nationally for my sample uh 10 to 15 years was 2.3 months of inventory over 15 years, which is the top end of town, but measured differently, 1.8 months. So it sells a very similar story. Um, but then we move into the price change. The 12-month price change for the less than 10 years, 2.7%. So well, quite different from that under 500k measure, right? So 12-month price change up until data in January, 2.7 plus 2.7. 10 to 15 years, minus 5%. Over 15 years, this was minus 8.7. I had to squint then because I don't have my glasses on. It's on the computer screen there. Uh, so I haven't zoomed it up really big. So it was minus uh, 8.7. Uh, and the last metric across of these three is time since peak. So just under eight months for the minus 10 years since the party ended, 10 months for the 10 to 15 year group, and 11 months for the over 15. So that's very aligned to the to the other measures. I think when you look at that, though, you see high high inventory should be correlated to future um, lower growth, right? You know, diet industry should create um, more buyers outweighing supply, buyers competing, pushing up prices, right? And so I think what this basically is alluding to that on the 12-month numbers, you know, a lot of the affordable part of the market looks like it's holding up. But if you had to sell in the market right now, you've got a lot of competition. You've got lots of inventory. You've got lots of listings on the market, et cetera. Um, and that's maybe the reason why prices are holding up a little bit because um, they're just sitting on the market. Vendors aren't meeting the market. That could be even part of it. But 
ultimately, <laughs> I think it's showing that, um, you know, they're, they're, they're starting to see signs that, you know, if you are having to list your property in the more the affordable sector, um, it is going to be a bit more of a race to the bottom because why would you be desperate as a buyer? If you've got lots of properties to choose from, you start lower and you make the, the sellers come to you. If there's not many properties to come, the FOMO kicks in. If you miss that property, then you, you know, you're going to have to wait months and months. You've already been looking months and months and you can't find anything. So I think when you come back in 12 months time, we should see that should flip the other way in some form. If you just base it on inventory, the higher the inventory should be, future growth should be lower, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next 12 months. I mean, is that sort of what you think would happen from here, Ken? Yeah, look, uh, the inventory levels are low across all bands here. So yeah. usually, you know, I've always said, oh, uh, equilibrium, balanced market, five or six months. Um, that's kind of changed now. I brought that back a fair bit. Um, but if you go online and look at what the Americans refer to as a balanced market or equilibrium, that's kind of what they say, five or six months. But I, I, that's really fascinating to see that the inventory levels in the under 500K are highest of that list. So I, I that was a surprise. I did not expect that. Uh, and equally, I didn't expect to see the over two, over two mil mark um, being so very, very low. But typically, inventory levels usually have a, a, a modest correlation because so many other variables that you throw in there. But when you do the old statistics thing and you test one variable against the other, if you look at price versus inventory, it's typically a four-month lag. So that, that's the one, you know, if you look at inventory change and current levels of inventory and you mix those up and put them into a model, your goodness of fit measure or how well that line fits those dots, um, it typically tells you that it's about the four-month buck, which makes sense, right? Because you list it, you sell it, it settles, time, all that jazz. It's really interesting. I think what's also interesting is that, you know, we as humans, we have this recency bias and a lot of people are talking up various affordable markets at the moment um, because they have been the ones that have been performing over the last 12 months based on this data, based on CoreLogic's data. Um, but what you're pointing to a weakness there in terms of higher inventory levels, even though you're saying it's still low, I still say, you know, three and a bit months worth of stock is, is I don't know, doesn't make me feel too comfortable if I was trying to sell um, so it will be interesting to see if what Chris is saying happens that it does flip the other way over the next 12 months. But also the fact is that, you know, we do look to what's happening right now. And this is a lot of, um, this recency bias that comes into the conversations around investing. It's why the whole thing about hot spotting and, and talking about the top 10 lists of what just has gone up and whatever, and people start piling into those areas because it makes them feel confident it's going to continue happening. And it doesn't necessarily. And I think what's been driving the affordability market potentially has been this this idea of, um, you know, that obviously as interest rates go up, there is a reduced borrowing capacity. And I've anecdotally been hearing that investors have been returning to the market. Have you been finding that in your mortgage broking business, Chris? Because a lot of mortgage brokers have been telling me they're seeing inquiry from investors going up and they will typically go to those markets as well. Is that happening? I guess you don't tend to deal with that type of buyer though, do you? We don't deal with the affordability investor too much. We would mm. most likely deal with someone who's been, come to us for a home first, uh, or they've had a home and they're just trying to get their first property, you know, like they're not reading a property chat and going, let's just buy our fifth investment property, et cetera, um, and let's leverage up. And so, yeah, no, we don't sort of uh, sort of try to attract that type of person because I think it's, it's, it's to be honest, it's a lot of it's a really messy scenario. Absolutely. If they come to us, we'll also try to, but our advice generally is to go in and look at each of those properties individually and have some hard conversations. And the other challenge is that borrowing capacity is still super tight. So the end capacity is really going to be that investor that's going to multiple portfolio. I reckon they're capped. I reckon they were, because incomes, it's five times income now, how much you can borrow and so unless they've had significant increases in salary, buying capacities are down 30%. And most of those investors are like, I've got a little bit extra capacity, 300 grand, let's buy 300 grand investment property. Oh, I've got another 300 grand, let's buy another one. And then all of a sudden they've got five of them. So um, yeah, I wouldn't say that. I definitely think the first home buyer, the must-do upgrade are in the market, but also the opportunistic upgraders in the market as well, because they're saying, well, I've got to do this. And actually, you know what, it makes a good time to do this because... I can move from my two to three and that gap's only a mil where it was two mil or, you know, it was 1.8 before. And I didn't want to do it last year because it ran on me. But now actually under this current price, 
because I've got a lot of equity in my first home, I'm not going to take a massive mortgage out to do that jump. And so, yeah, that that's happening. Whereas that upgrader would only do it last year in the heat. Well, a lot of them would do it because they thought rates would stay low. And that, so that's that's not in the market. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about the budgets. I, I've done some reports that I've put on my website for, for free download. And there's another 500K one and a seven uh, a 500 to 750K and then a 750 to 1 mil. Yeah, the volume of the under 500 one has like been 1,200 downloads for that one and maybe 30% of that volume for the next tier up and then you know, maybe 5 or 10% for the next one. So that tells you where people are, what people are thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And as time goes on, they get less and less for their 500,000, don't they? Um, <laughs> so interesting that you, you said something else earlier, Kent, which sort of struck me, is that if people don't meet the market, like if vendors don't meet the market, their properties will sit on the market for a long time or they won't list them in the first place or they'll ultimately sure. withdraw them. And it's interesting because, you know, I've said on the podcast before, I've been tracking properties that have sold in uh, 2021 and on sold in 2022 and now looking at some of the sold on selling now. Um, so they're sold in the boom and on sold after significant price falls. And I'm talking about in Sydney here, where we've had the most, you know, according to CoreLogic, the highest price falls in the country. Um, and yet 75% of those properties have sold for more than what they were paid for in the first in the boom right now i get that there's different points in the curve that that some of those you know the actual market is still slightly ahead of or that you know that original sale price etc cetera, etc cetera. i also get that potentially there's a bias in that data in the sense that only the people prepared to meet the market only the people who really had to sell um did sell as opposed to people who didn't have to but it still shows that if those people that don't have to sell can hold on to their property that does underpin the market and market value, and it also does show. It's very good. I mean, I've now uh, I'm up to my twenty first, twenty second property, um, and still three quarters selling at or more than they sold in the boom. So, and this is one of the the sort of the counterintuitive things that you know I, I always when when a market transitions, I like to start collecting actual evidence if what's you know on a case by case basis, obviously, but it's still evidence. So I'm finding this sort of rather fascinating. And I know you've got this little lovely little chart that we looked at, which is the three-year flip chart. Yes. And what you say, it's 4,700 properties across the country that have... Sold, some, yeah, resold or relisted within three years. Yeah, which is sort of interesting in itself because, like, property is and should be a long-term proposition. So that's, you know, as a proportion of what's this... Nearly eleven million properties yeah. out there, so I'm not I'm not good and agile enough with my numbers to work out what percentage of. Although, if if six hundred thousand properties turn over in a year, that's so that's we're looking at um, less than one percent. So we're looking at about yeah. two thirds of a percent, three quarters of a percent. Yeah, I'm going to draw the line and say, look, I get interested once the percentage is above one. Right. So this, you know, this is not interesting to you, but it is to me. Yeah, but you know, once once you get more than one percent of a uh, of the listings in a given area. Uh, are being flipped within a couple of years or two or three years, that becomes interesting. Mm. And there In some areas, that looks like it's quite high. There's a cluster. Um, mm. If you look at, I'll pick on Sydney. Sydney is pretty well distributed. There's a fairly even spread of these properties. So we've got to account that some of these are renovated. If you go and look at the listing, some of them are renovated, right? So there's okay. always that. But there's a cluster in and around Summer Hill. So, really? Yeah. So you guys would know that area. So the, the, if you go across, around the country, there's a bit of a cluster in the Gold Coast. There's a yep. little bit of a cluster in the Sunshine Coast, uh, pretty evenly spread everywhere else around the country, and another cluster that's probably the standout in and around Summerhill. Mm. Yeah. So that's 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 interesting. Now, I um, you know, I I, I can't tell you exactly why. <laughs> it's I couldn't even think of off the top of my head. Even some hypothesis, hypotheses I can't think of. Interesting. So when you say, because it has to be over 1% to be interesting to you. Yeah. Well, then, yeah. Well, it's just, in, yeah. So in terms of a percentage to say, look, are they overrepresented? Are these relisted or, you know, whatever we want to call them, flipping properties? Uh, are they, is there an overrepresentation? Now, the other key metric here is are they flipping, are they flipping in a market that's 
pretty solid market conditions? Is it flipping in a market that's got low inventory? Um, you know, is it flipping in a market that's already 11 months past peak? And that's kind of what's happening, even though there, there's a, a quite a few of these properties mm. popping up around Summer Hill. There's no panic buttons. But, you know, the only people that should be concerned would have bought at the peak. So if you bought 11 months ago and were selling now, yeah, okay, I'm worried for you. On average, you might be selling for about 10% below. Um, but if you bought two years ago, you're probably okay. So, yeah, it's all perspective. I think what's interesting, I'm looking at your flip chart, Ken. A lot of those properties are around the train station in Summer Hill, and they've all issued on the same date. Did they all do some group um, yeah. potential sale to a developer or something? Um, you know, that's what I could potentially see happen. Maybe could be in copying. Maybe that's a, a reason. But you're right. Like, that's an amazing little play on data though where spreading it out across the city you can see these gluts and you could see these streets that people you know move into and go ultimately i don't like that street um and i want to get out of there <laughs> so if you see a, you see a glut of you know property selling even if you expanded that out to say four or five years or six years you would start to see that the streets people come in and they get out of and ultimately they're the streets you don't want to be buying in uh for long-term growth well i just i just quickly grabbed the first address i saw put it in and did a look at the photos while you were talking and it was a perfectly renovated property. Yeah. Okay. So with a flip. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're just, even if you zoom in on Summer Hill, they're dispersed. It's so weird though, because it's really obvious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting take on the data. Um, and again, it, you, mm. I think if you, if you are uh, people who bought two years ago or three years ago, you're okay. You know, it's a, mainly if you bought at the peak uh, 11 months ago on average, uh, they would be the ones that would have a few worries unless they've done one of these magical renovations, but they're probably going to make 10% less than what they what they expected. Well, yeah, renovation costs been going up too. <laughs> from a data can around overvalued suburbs. And I think this is another interesting take where, um, it's a, I'll let you explain it, but it's hard to say what something's overvalued, right? Like a lot of people... Um, they band around the world. Oh, it's expensive there. Okay, but expensive mm. compared to what? And compared to what? This unvalued. Well, compared to what? Like, compared, yeah, it's a tough one. I I did this because I was asked to create it for the AFR for it. So it's going into an AFR story. So the you know the came through as can you give me a list of properties or suburbs that I think are are overvalued? Now, what does that mean? And <laughs> so the best thing I came up with as a meaning was, uh, is it expensive relative to the area median so is it a relatively more expensive suburb hence it would depend upon a lot of -of out-of-town buyers number one number two is it in one of those locations that relies on the sydney buyer to come in or the melbourne buyer to come in with their sydney pockets full of money Uh, number two number three is it has it got an affordability ratio greater than 10 years you know is it is it one of those that relative to the local income levels, um, there's not going to be an abundance of local buyers or first-home buyers in these locations. Um, and then the third was inventory. Is, there, is inventory level building up and are prices coming down? So tick, 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 all of those things, I came up with a list of suburbs. And some of them make sense because they do align to those to that tick box. And I know I like to talk about Bellingen. I've jumped down the list a bit. But Bellingen's been this great barometer because... Yeah, I look at it and say, I want to become a hippie and move and do the Bellingen thing. But, you know, very much, I think a lot of people were having those hippie thoughts that I did. And and a lot of buyers probably went in there from Sydney. Yeah. And uh and and sped up. So, you know, with those that demand shifting, um, you know, these these are markets. So what have I got in there? I've got some suburbs that I don't know the name of. Before you move on, sorry, the, Bellin- the Bellinger thing is a classic because you know I I feel the same pull to Bellinger. I think it's, yeah. I think it's beautiful, yeah. right? Love it. Frigging hot in summer and sticky, but let's be that as it may. Where what a it's got some sort of bar and hinterland esque. As you're wearing linen anyway, so you know it's you're like- wearing linen and looking cool, mm. and and it's it's got a great main street full of historic buildings and funky cafes and that whole thing, right? It's got the vibe, right? Um, it's like Bangalore, sort of, slightly less expensive Bangalore. Nimbin? Not Nimbin. <laughs> and maybe one day Nimbin could be like that. But so 
But Bangalore is near an airport. It's also near beaches, right? Yes, maybe Yurunga and, you know, Coffs Harbour and whatever, but it's it's not quite as connected, Bellingham. It's mm-hmm. a bit further away from everything. Um, and so I've always looked at it and thinking that it should be more affordable than some of those other places just mentioned because it doesn't have those really key things going for it that they have. But I have been watching Bellingen go up and up and up and up and up and some pretty yeah. incredible um, yeah. results. For, and also that floods and there are people, locals or people who are not locals may not realise that they're by on one side of the river. They might they get flooded. Locked. They, get, they get, might get locked in, locked <laughs> out, locked out, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there's all these sort of features there. And, yeah, I've been wondering around that. So it's when I saw a list, I went, yeah, okay, good. That's what I was sort of thinking. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> uh, I'll go through some of them. And, uh, like, I'll focus on the ones that I'm familiar with or, mm-hmm. you know, most your listeners would be familiar. Sorrento. So, yep. yes, one yep. of those one of those places. Darwin Heads, uh, you know, similar. Um, Who is that? Sort of now near Court Torquay, isn't it? Just, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so it's on the other side of the bay? Yeah. To Sorrento. And uh, I can pull up on a map if you want. But and Queen, it's sort of the same, right? Queen's goes down there as well. Yeah. Um, sort of pocket of the world. Noosa Heads. Yeah. Ooh, over, over, right. overvalued. That's always been overvalued, though, because the thing is with Noosa Heads, like particularly Hastings Street, and the apart- say the, ha- the apartments on Hastings Street sell for a ridiculous, Ridiculous premium versus even just a new Seville or along the river or whatever. Like there was this always this draw, you know, and one side of the road, not the other side of the road, got to be beachfront. And it, there's, it was hugely disproportionate, certainly compared to locals and what they were earning as well. Like in terms of whether they could, they couldn't afford that sort of property on a, on a regular local wage. So that doesn't surprise me. Yes, and the market's adjusting. I mean, you can see the evidence is that the data's shifting and it's adjusting. Um, yeah, and these were, as I said, these areas were the hot, hot places two years ago when we were talking about them. They're at the top of the charts across everything. So uh, they're all beautiful places. Yeah. So you're saying that basically the big money rushed up there. Yes. Yeah, and as soon as soon as you turn that off, you because of affordability, you're effectively ignoring local buyers. Yeah, got it. Yeah, you know, you're you're priced out. So, um, Yamba, Yamba's one that you know it's a, a very expensive jewel relative to that region. So, you know, the Northern Rivers. No, yes, yeah. So not not far from you know McLean, Grafton, whatnot. Um, Belgium, like we covered the, the locals of gam- like there's a temptation to gamble to sell, right? Like, let's say you've seen this enormous price growth over the last you know few years in these locations, and that's your years and years of income. Like, that's like almost 500 grand into your super fund for retirement. Um, and then you've seen prices come back. You know, it, it, sometimes you might be like, well, sustainable growth, I still see another big run up in growth. But in this situation, you may say to yourself, look, we need to bank this money for our retirement. We can still sell this place for one point five. It was only seven hundred thousand or eight hundred thousand two years ago. So you, you you also got people, you know, not willing to gamble with their house and get out of the market because it's just like they've had this enormous amount of growth, which changes their plan. Whereas in capital cities, people aren't willing to do that as much because they're the long term growth sustainable. They're like, if I sell out, can I get back in? Mm. And and so I think that's. I mean, we're definitely seeing that. We sort of client buy up in Byron a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the, the gap, well, from what they bought it out from what they were advertising, was 30% unders. So it was 30%, like, and this is like over two mil. So it listed and they actually were forced to sell the person from what I understand. Um, so, you know, they had to meet the market. But yeah, you can see that there's, the, there's not that sustainable sort of local base that'll just say, right, we can just hold on to this forever. We're not going to ever sell. I think the temptation for a lot of these areas is, is to get out and take your money because it means a lot to some of these families that that extra money they haven't got the income to top up their supers and etc. Okay, if you can move a couple of suburbs away, great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you can. If you can. I mean, the the I just always remember filming the show. You know, it's ten years ago or so now, and certainly we did a, cu- a number of episodes up in the the Northern Rivers because that's where Sydney siders like to move to. Let's face it. Um, so there's always that that see tree change dream um, happening up there and I was really really shocked at how slow the market was and it really does show how 
long you have to wait in, re- particularly in regional areas, if you are um, going to try to ride that that wave. You know, in in an urban area, you've got there's always buyers. You know, but when you've got something that's a little bit unique, you know, there's acreage, there's different suburbs, there's different uh, aspects, there's different views, there's different, and there's different types of um, water sources on properties. There's different, you know, like whether you can, whether it's arable or just all jungle or bush or whatever. Yeah. So there's there's a huge amount of variety and it draws individual buyers and they don't all want, you know, you don't have a pool all wanting the same sort of property and then being delivered with that same sort of property. So there's all this sort of disparity and diversity of the type of stock. And some of these properties were selling for a lot less than they'd been purchased for. Some of them selling a lot less than the rebuild costs would be, the replacement costs would be. And others just sitting on the market for months and months and months, you know, more than a year, some of them. And maybe if people have experienced that and have a long memory and they're not going with recency bias, as we talked about earlier, you know, they're going to remember that. If they start to see prices shift and it's like, well, God, we don't want to wait five years for things to turn around for next yeah. time. You know, that is why we want to jump out now. So, because, you know, they're, they're older and wiser. They get what can happen. Yeah. Well, I, um, back in the mortgage insurance days, and I'd get out in the field and we'd, we'd look at some of the biggest claims. And they were these, you've just described some of the biggest claims we had, mm-hmm. which were these lifestyle locations. So, you know, outside of that 10K ring around a, a regional location and a lot of the regional centers had a population of less than 10. So I called it the 10-10 rule. I made that up, but they were the big claims and, mm-hmm. and, and typically they would be very hard to sell because you had a very, very limited yeah. amount of buyers. And a lot of these mm-hmm. lifestyle people, they, they build massive sheds or they do unique things. Yes. Yeah. I'm yes. never, I'm never going to leave here. And they were unique properties in every aspect and, you know, very hard to find uh, that subset of buyer. Yeah. I think the key thing you've said is, Kent, is that you need to worry about what the locals will afford. And unless the, you know, you can bet on sustainable people leaving capital cities that are on high incomes. And that's when the, in 2020, 2021, when clients started going past sort of north of Wollongong or central coast, or they wanted to go down to Kaima or Berry or Jarvis Bay, um, I was kind of stopping them and sort of saying, look, is this sustainable? You're really betting on full-time work from home. You're betting on sort of everyone just moving down there. Like there's no sort of, if, if it goes to hybrid work, are people going to be living in Jarvis Bay? Like, you know, if it's two or three days in an office and are the locals going to keep out to keep pushing up prices? And I think that's the big thing that we're seeing is, is that mm-hmm. if the, if the people aren't coming out of the cities and wanting to go to these places, then it's getting repriced based to what the locals can afford. Because ultimately that's who are, who are upgrading in the city and people are likely to cash yeah. out. Um, so, I mean, even last week a client was trying to buy a, a winery up in um, the Hunter Valley. And, you know, in, in their <laughs> so that like, ship had sailed many years ago. <laughs> yeah, but it's like in their situation, they're doing extremely well um, and they want a asset to use, you know, um, as a family. But there's a huge opportunity cost of owning it, you know, in terms of what's driving its price, the price I have to pay for it today, you know, it's future growth, et cetera. And, and I think, you know, and, and through educating it, when, you know, the, who's really driving that market and who they're going to sell to and where the kids go to school, you know, if, if the local buyer, they're, they're a holiday home buyer. If a local buyer doesn't want to live there to send their kids to school, then you're all relying on people buying for holiday homes. And is that really a sustainable market? And I think that's what people really need to think through is what's driving the price today and what's going to drive the price long-term. You do need the local market, sustainable people upgrading and wanting to get into that because that's a a never-ending demand, I guess, rather than something that can be impacted with low interest rates or, you know, COVID or, you know, um, this sort of lifestyle push for a period. Well, uh, one of the things, there's a lot of people in and around Newcastle that, that have holiday homes. Uh, you know, an hour or two north of here. And a lot of these fishing villages, as we call them, got to ridiculous prices. And they're still up there. I mean, some massive prices. So just when demand tipped up, it wasn't only that they were wealth, people with a bit of wealth coming out of Sydney. It was just this surge in demand relative to a very, very low supply, very low pipeline. So all those fundamentals drove prices up significantly. And on the list here, I've got um, Paradise Point down in Victoria, Forrester's Beach. You'd know Forrester's Beach, Naruma yep. down the south coast. Naruma. It's a long way it's, down. It's a long way down. Yeah. It is stunning. It is beautiful. So 
It is beautiful. You, you drive through there, you you get the attraction of it, right? A stunning location. You but want... if you drive through there, you're in the middle of a 13-hour drive from Sydney to Melbourne or vice versa. It's a long wait for everywhere. Yeah, oh, it's a, a weekend, a location, um, good retirement. Oh, who? Oh, well, well, Justin Hams is driving he's, to Roomba, right? He's, he's, he's bought most of the places down there. Uh, yeah, I mean, he bought it. That's why it's overpriced because one person is... T- <laughs> Justin Hansen, but yeah, in the rumor, but yeah, I mean that whole. I mean that, that's a, that's a prime example though, where it's not commutable. It's not city incomes can't go down there. There is an airport though, though, but you know how many people want to get the airport to the Sydney to city for work? Um, I've got you know. What, oh well, those tiny little things. No thanks. That that come through, no. and it costs money, right? And and people don't have an abundance of spare cash. So I think what we've found is that you had the commutable lifestyle locations. We coined that phrase a fair bit when the COVID exodus was going on, and we did see and call out that the markets that look good and they're still good are the commutable lifestyle locations. Yeah. Um, but these non-commutable beautiful locations are the ones being hit, and they're at the extremes. They're outside of the commutable travel by car. Although Sorrento and Queenscliff, you could argue that they might be within the uh, the, the commutable uh, radius. Yes, within the radius. Any any thoughts on to why they might have made the list? Oh, I think they surged. They, you know, the other massive price jumps as well and, you know, relative to the areas they're in. So, you know, the, the, the affordability for the locals, you need to really be a, yep. a, a wealthy Melbourneite to get down there. Mm. I think Sorrento's, that was in it. No, not at all, Kia, Paran, sort of Turak, um, sort of buyer. Um, oh, I didn't yeah. have a house in Turak and they have a house in Sorrento. Um, As you did. And so it's, it's you're almost buying the, the postcode snob sort of reality here. Like it's, you're buying the postcode, you're buying Sorrento, you're buying to be close to so-and-so. And so money doesn't matter. I need to be close. I need to be able to drop in and be able to walk past it. I think that's the. Sorrento is that little outlier, I would imagine. Queenscliff's definitely not. I mean, that's the other way around down to the Geelong. But, I mean, that's probably picking back off the success of Geelong. I mean, Geelong's, you know, inner city got really expensive. You know, the, the new towns, the Geelong West, the Ripple, Ripple um, side of Ripple Lee or whatever it is, um, that whole pocket, you know, it was heaps of people coming out of Melbourne. You know, we had quite a few clients buy down there. Um, mm. And, you know, and then also people going, well, if I don't need to be in Geelong, I could actually just drive to Geelong and get the train or, um, and it's an extra half an hour. So yeah, I think that's what that's picking back off. Yeah. I was just chatting to a a local gym manager. They said, yeah, I moved up from Geelong and I bought a couple of suburbs out and I bought a two bedroom unit and I can afford it no matter what. So interest rates have gone up, but I'm okay. And I'm glad I bought within my, you know, what I could afford. It was a, a, a really good story. Whereas I think a lot of people just stretched themselves. Yeah. Now the U turn. So we talked about sort of those three um, three year U turns, if you like, of people reselling after three years. Mm. Have are we seeing any evidence of people returning to urban centres after their sea and tree change? Yeah, I've only got some anecdotal evidence from some stories that have appeared uh, online. So you know, the typical person that got got lonely and moved back to Melbourne it seems mm. to be a bit of a, a, a threat. So. You know, there there have been a lot of people that did that massive exodus, knew knew nobody, and moved to your Bellingtons or whatnot. But I don't have anything in my data that tells me, you know, if 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 Johnny Smith moved from Bellingtons back to Bankstown. And that's the problem, isn't it? It's hard to find the data for this, right? Is this, yeah. you know, you're the clever guy that sort of addresses the the tackles the problems that we throw you, and you, yeah, I got a way to to nut my way through that. Is there a way to work that out? Is there an easy way? Yes, there is. No. Look, there's some ABS data that looks at population flows from regions, um, but from and to is uh, uh, you know, something I don't have my f- uh, finger on the pulse. I guess probably the only people that have got all of this data are the government. I, you know, if you know anyone in the government that I could talk to, because I get asked a lot, have you got owners' names for investment properties? <laughs> that, I'd, I'd be a wealthy person if I had that data. Why do people want that? Yeah, they want to sell shit to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny that. Oh, that's the challenge, isn't it? Everything's all about being sold to, mm. really, when you think about it. So, any other anomalies? I mean, this whole 
I guess conversations in a way been about anomalies. It's about what what doesn't necessarily fit the narrative. But you you got anything? Yeah, particularly curly. The, the big the big thing for me is there are a lot of markets that the fundamentals look great. So if it weren't for the negative sentiment uh, of inflation, cost of living, mm-hmm. borrowing capacity, you know, if if inflation was under control and we weren't talking about potential increases in interest rates further. A lot of these markets would be really either stable or getting some marginal growth. I could name half a dozen markets that are, have all the fundamentals in place to be showing one one percent a month growth. Hmm. But maybe yeah, we, we've been speaking to agents. You'd see this too, Veronica. Listings are massively down in February. Like, mm. like go press refresh on domain and real estate. See how many properties are coming on. Seventy mm. of them are good. Client missed down on a property last week. Sold in an hour. Like it was a. Uh, well over the price guide, literally it was, you know, it was a seagull effect, right? Chip, chip came on, everyone was waiting, great property, bang, everyone went for it and it went, you know, straight away up, an hour after, an hour after the first open home, I mean, like rather than an hour. So, I mean, I guess you're right. Like that, that's what, that's what we're seeing on the ground, but that's not what the media says. I mean, it's going to be interesting about the RBA, you know, it was very dire the minutes, right? We need, and the market pricing on interest rates completely flipped pretty quick. And so we're saying like expecting rates to go over 4%. I don't know. When you say is a jawboning, you know, are they just basically saying that to keep the lid on, you know, people spending, um, because they felt like they were on top of the inflation problem? Are they trying to bluff the Australians? You know, are we not really going to have to lift to that high? Because you know, from looking at a lot of other data, they're saying that inflation's under control. So I think that's where, you know, like you say, can if that unknown was not that goes away, and you know they do stop, maybe that's just the 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 match that sort of lights those markets because. All that's really stopping it is a bit of competition and people willing to stretch. Then you get FOMO, right? Like that property we could have purchased last month for two point three. Now it's two point five. Now I missed. Mm. I'm out. And I, and I think that and the rental crisis is so deep, and the supply mm. is so shallow that you know you've got probably up to a third of the markets that are in rental crisis. Don't I can't see anything on the horizon to resolve that problem in terms of building approval. So when you look at the pipeline of building approvals and you apply a proxy measure of what's the rental tenure. So if I've got 100 properties over the last couple of years approved, 10% rental tenure, you know, 10 extra rental properties coming in. I would argue that a third of these rental markets have no let up. There's no relief in sight for them. And that will have a flow-on effect to the housing market because where do people go? So you'd be petrified. You know, you would double down and hold on to your house at all costs because you don't want to enter the rental market because it will cost you just as much. Yeah. And that's why- well, you, you might want, not find somewhere. You may not. You'll be homeless. And, and, and that's why I keep on focusing on the, the affordability. That seems to be the thing that gets me that the, that, that keeps the affordable markets buoyant. Uh, even though a lot of them are suffering in terms of lower socioeconomics, lower cash flow, really hit hard, that there, there's a conundrum, and it's that rental market. Yeah. Makes sense to us with the upgraders. So we've got a, quite a few at the moment, and the natural tendency in this market is to want to sell first. That's what the agents are saying to them as well, mm. which is obvious, right? They want to just yeah. get the property sold. Mm. But then when we chat to them, we're like, well, that's not a risk-free option, right? You're, mm. A, you got to go find a rental, and they're like admitting that that's going to be really hard and stressful. Yeah. Um, and then B, they're out of the market and they can easily get caught out and C, they haven't found anything they like and D, they've been looking in that one property that, you know, did, did they like that went, they lost it. So through an education, they're all get back to where they should be. Usually assuming they've got a good property to sell is to try to buy on a long settlement and then sell. Um, and because of, like you say, Ken, the, the tightness of the rental market really does scare them because they go, I can't easily just flip in and out. I can't easily flip from owning to renting. And then back into owning, that whole thing's really stressful, right? I'm going to not sell till I find something. And then someone else is saying, I'm not selling till I find something. So you get this just cascade of no one selling because no one starts selling. Um, and so it's a Mexican standoff. And that's ultimately where we're at. Like the market's freezed up because no one wants to, you know, be the first one to move. You know, you need someone to sell to create that, to then create the chain. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's ultimately what we're going to see is very low inventory till, till people start having the confidence to sell and gamble, right? Um, but where do you buy if the supply lines aren't there? You know, there's just, we've got builders going under everywhere. Yeah. It's it's a very interesting, um, the one thing that I, I, I 
keep coming up with is that the rules are changed. You know, and every economist we interview, I'm like, have the rules changed? Do we need to throw out the old rule book? Could we have to stop looking to the same data and the same information to make different decisions? You know, like this is, we don't have a a map for a lot of this stuff. And so, I mean, there's some basic principles at play. I mean, one thing I always advise people is when you are looking at answering that question, do I sell first or buy first, is like you have to look at what's most difficult. Yeah. And that's the thing you have to focus on doing first. That's assuming that you have the financial capacity maybe to keep two properties simultaneously for any period of time. But certainly you need a plan. You need a plan and it does come down to what's the most difficult thing to do. And so I think there's this assumption, oh, the price of falling, it must be easier to buy. You know, as a as a buyer's agent, I mean, you know, I shudder when I hear the word buyer's market because it is no way in a million years it's easier to buy in a buyer's market. Part of what we're talking about earlier is that, you know, competition for really good property is fierce and you've got this diabolical shortage of stock. You get misinformation at every corner. Like people are being told stuff. And I look, I know, like you mentioned earlier, sales agents, of course, they're going to say you should sell first, you know, but at the end of the day, they're talking through their lens, you know, and they might honestly believe they're giving good advice. But they're giving advice from their perspective only. And, you know, I've got to check my own biases here because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fallible as well. Uh, in property space, it's really difficult for people to get good advice. You know, where do you even go, really? So in, that, in that scenario I was talking about there, a lot of the people, the agents are perpetuating the market's falling based on… Yes, based on, they are. Based on macro data, based on Sydney data, mm-hmm. based on… You know, not even local data or case studies, just that the market's falling because that's what people are thinking. Market's falling 1% yeah. a month. Like market's a fall at 1% a month. It falls it like fast, right? It's And then it plateaus. Like it doesn't just have this slow, gradual fall. People just start slowly. Most of it's concentrated in the yeah. first few months posing. Exactly. And so the market's fallen and now it's potentially holding, right? It's not concerned. And so yeah. what their agents are saying is, look, if you sell in six months' time, you'll be selling for 6% less price. Exactly. And you can purchase it six percent less. Um, most of them, you. and most of them really aren't that numerically uh, adept. They really aren't, you know. And I, I, I'll look back to what I was like and the sort of shit that I used to say when I was a sales agent before I learned, you know, to be as critical as I am now. Before, before I got tutored by Kent, <laughs> so you know. So I'm a little bit, little bit better at it these days. But you know, and that's that is that common rhetoric. At the end of last year, I don't sell. Oh, you got to sell now because next year's going to be even worse. Oh, that's interesting. Where did you get your crystal ball from? Because I've had an order in for one for oh a few decades now. I'm still waiting for it. Like, why have you got one and I don't have a crystal ball? Um, you know, and it it's like, and people actually believe it. I, you know, I, I guess it's because you got all that sort of the media is backing backing them up. You know, they believe it. They don't stop to think. Hang on a minute. How does this person know? No, there's, there's just that Dunning Kruger effect, and and there's people who put on a very confident face, and they know how to do video, or they know how to do social media very well. So they are very believable, and they believe themselves. Yes, not that believable. Like listings are pretty low, so people aren't obviously taking the bait too much. Um, because if we did see, you'd see a massive increase in listings, right? Um, but you can see that a lot of people are just saying, "Hang on a sec, I don't yeah, know what's only- going only if someone had to sell and they knew they had to sell in the short term, anyone else is going to say, I, I'm digging my heels in. There's no way I'm selling. But, I mean, we've come across recently a property we're looking at and the owner apparently thinks they're going to, you know, get this amazing price, which, honestly, they had three buyers at auction and they, I, I'm guessing, reading between the lines, they insisted that the agent open it with a really high vendor bid. I think they were trying to control the process. And all two of the buyers that this auction had made offers prior, I knew that for a fact, and not one, nobody put the hand up in the air because the vendor bid was too high. So they they missed the opportunity to actually find out what the market really would pay. And then on conver- subsequent conversations with the agent, we found find that this this very clever person who's in finance and has decided they know exactly how this is all going to play out. They think that they're going to sell now at this great price and also in the same market, screw a deal for somebody else's property. And you go, mate, you got it all wrong. But if you are wanting to upgrade, this is the time to do it. Absolutely. And if you found the property you want to upgrade to, absolutely, it's the time you want to do it. However, Trying to think you can screw screw your buyer and screw your vendor. Like, because then you want to dine out on that for the next 10 years. Good luck, you know. 
<laughs> You'd be a very, very clever person indeed. Anyway, they screwed their own sales as far as I'm concerned. All right. We should wrap this one up, hey? Yeah. And what do you want to cover next? I'd like to go deep into the rental crisis next time, if you'd like. Yes. Because um, I've done a bit of a deep dive and there are a number of areas, um, mainly South Australia and Queensland, smashed, smashed with, with just not enough pipeline supply, rental crisis, uh, affordability issues, long list of problems in those two states, not limited to those two states, but overrepresented in those two locations. So can I come up for that? You quickly would I throw a bit extra um, sauce in there. Um, with the rental crisis, I'd love if you could, I might not be able to do this with your data, but you know, you split it up into those sort of price segments, just in terms of the high price segments, you know, what portion are investments and, you know, what in terms of rental stock, you know, like, is it 80 or 90% that are, you know, owned by owner occupiers and is that increasing over time? I don't know if you've got any way of oh, sort of telling. So we feel, yeah, we got census data that uh, between uh, the last two census, so, you know, the five-year gap between it up to 2021 and you can look just off the top of my head, typically you'll see probably in, inching up maybe 1%, maybe 1.5% between those two yeah. periods on average. Um, and the other thing you'll see is if, prop, if density goes up, i.e. if units are being yeah. built, that's yeah. where you'll see the, the big the big changes. So in summary, if you want to solve the rental crisis, you need a lot of apartments built, a lot of apartments, you need high density, and you need investors behind them. That and you need government at the bottom of that, you know, underpin the affordability stuff because, you know, um, investors don't want 1% yield. Government should be happy with 1% yield. And you need build to rent up at the top. So it all just helps. From every angle, we need to double down. So you, we want to embrace build to rent that are aiming for the top end of town. We need the middle and we need the bottom end government. We need all three layers. I'm pretty passionate about that. You can probably yeah. guess. The only problem is, get stuck it. Is, um, is that what you're suggesting is the investor, uh, we've got to stitch up a bunch of investors, most of them probably going to be first home buyers. Um, to basically buy poor properties to support the rental crisis. <laughs> and so they're stepping out of rental crisis into, you know, owning property crisis because they're not going to get any gains on these properties. And that's the, the long issue. We're just going to regurgitate the last 30 years um, of basically building high-density stuff that only investors and renters want. Yeah, it might yeah. give us more places to live, but it's not going to, uh, unfortunately, get those people ahead who are buying those properties and, that's the, the the reality is we're talking you know, pretty good yields but very low capital gains for that class um you know, we, we say it all the time but i'll come into the to the next uh, podcast with a different lens i want to come in from a lens of how do you solve it for the problem for renters um and, and you can counter it by saying well there are, there are going to be concerns for that investor class absolutely excellent well, that sounds like it's going to be a great chat and um, I look forward to it. Thank you, Ken. Thank, Thank you. Dance. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.